Well, a bunch of us last week, uh, a bunch of men were up in the mountains, and we had a men's retreat, and uh, it was awesome. Uh, Larry Lindquist did a great job challenging us. We then went into small groups, met and talked and prayed, and um, if you were up there, one of the great things, we had so many new men, new to the church, and to have the opportunity to intersect with them and get to talk and so uh, was fantastic. So guys, I hope next year, if you weren't able to make it, you'll come up and join us. It was just a, a fantastic weekend. And then something else I just want to mention, something's happening this week. Um, I think it's Tuesday. I don't know. Uh, I, I'm told that Tim told you who to vote for last week. That's good. I don't have to go there. Uh, Tim took care of that. But uh, you know, the good news is this, you, you do understand that no matter who gets elected, the devil's in the White House, right? Depends on where you stand. Yeah, that's we're a very divided country on this election. Uh, but the really, really, really good news is that Jesus is also on the throne of a bigger, badder, in the good sense, better kingdom. And, uh, and we trust in and hold on to him. And, and our call is to live out our Christian lives and to love the way Jesus loved and care for people the way Jesus cares for people. And, and then we live in this unusual country. You understand our country is so different than any and every other in that uh, we have certain freedoms given to us, hard-fought freedoms. And so get out there and vote, you know, get out there and vote, exercise those freedoms. And uh, I don't know if we represent the general population of our country, but uh, if we do, you'll each be canceling out each other's vote. So... <laughs> Um, okay, let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we have the freedom to gather in this place and to worship. You are such a magnificent, loving, gracious, and good God. And we do pray for our nation, God. This is a, an election, a big one, a presidential election, and so many down-ballot candidates as well. And we just lift this up to you. We know that you raise up a nation. You put down a nation. We know that uh, you put people in power and uh, take power away from people. You are the God who reigns. You are Lord Jesus, Lord of all. And so help us to exercise the freedoms, the rights that we have, and to do those, Father, with uh, grace and mercy and with wisdom. And then, Father, take advantage. We, we pray, please take advantage of this time that we have together to study, to think, and to reflect as we, as we dive in. May we not leave this place, this room, this building uh, without hearing from you and being changed because we have asked you to work in us and speak to us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Well, we are in a series that we started a couple weeks ago called Digital Living. And the fact of the matter is technology is changing our lives in remarkable, remarkable ways, in some ways for the better, in some ways for the worse. We saw two weeks ago that technology is making us smarter. There's no question about that. It's connecting us with more people. It's making the Word of God more accessible and available. Uh, it's making information more accessible. It helps us to get up in the morning, to stay fit during the day, to eat right, to work more efficiently. And much of the technology that we create is actually a reflection of the fact that we are made in God's image. We, we make and we do these creative things. We talked about how the word technology is actually made up of two Greek words, tekton, which means essentially craftsman, craftsmanship. Uh, Jesus was, we said, a tekton. He was someone who uh, used the skills and abilities to create things. The other Greek word is logos, uh, which means word or divine reason. The apostle John begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word. 
And uh, point being that John is saying Jesus is the exact expression of who God is. He's the perfect revelation, the perfect representation, the perfect embodiment of who God is. He is the Logos, God revealed. So somebody, when they have an idea in their mind and they go to work developing technologies to make that idea become a reality, uh, whether that's a notebook or a laptop or a smartphone or whatever it is, first it's an idea, later it's revealed, it's expressed. And that uh, word that would express that is this word logos. That's what that word is getting at. So once upon a time, Steve Jobs had an idea. Bill Gates had an idea. Meg Whitman had an idea. And their ideas were, were developed and they became tecton logos or technology. Now, all of this can be good or it can be bad. It actually cuts both ways. God obviously wants us to use technology for good. That's a given. And that's what we're going to look at in this message this morning. So for the next few minutes, we're going to talk about, I had no better way to organize this, the Ten Commandments of Digital Living. It's not very original. Okay. Excuse me. Anyway, here we go. I'm just going to walk through uh, what we as followers of Jesus need to commit to, I think, when it comes to how we live our lives in the digital age. Now, of course, we do all of this only with God's help. This is no pulling up your bootstraps and trying harder. We will fail at this all the time, every time, if we don't do this in the filling of the Spirit with God's help. And I just want to walk through these, and then at the end of the message, I'll be challenging us to make some commitments. So, is that okay? Love asking questions like that. What can you say? Yep, that's okay. So here's number one, commandment number one. Make technology your servant and not your master. Uh, if I was going to summarize in a single phrase all of God's teaching that ought to impact our lives online uh, and on social media, it would be from this famous statement that Jesus made. Jesus said this, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This is the message of the word of God. It sums up the law and the prophets. So the idea there is applied to my digital life would say that everything I post, everything I write, uh, all of my phone calls, any Instagrams I send, any Facebook postings, I do under the lordship of Jesus Christ in a surrendered spirit. That's what's expected of me. There's a lady named Florence Detler. Florence went on Facebook when she was 101 years old. She took a computer class when she was 99. She said she wanted to grow and she wanted to stretch. Florence is a Christian. She was at that time the oldest person on the planet of the one billion or so on Facebook, uh, the oldest person on Facebook, and they found out about Florence. And so Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg actually met Florence, gave her a personal tour of Facebook. Instantly, Florence had 7,000 friend requests, <laughs> and then she turned 101. And today, I think she might be 105 or 106. She's still going. Florence says that she went online because she wants to know what's going on in the lives of the people she loves, and she wants to be aware of what's happening in the world so that she could pray for it. That's a pretty good use of the internet, of being online, of social media. Florence has inspired people all over the world. She uses technology to inspire others tells stories and stuff. She serves God online. She embodies the spirit of commandment number one. 
I want to love and honor God with the use of my technology. So whatever I tweet, post, text, email, phone call, Instagram, I'm going to do it to serve God. Are you with me so far? Okay. Number two, don't compare your actual inside to another person's virtual outside. This is really important. Uh, This, friends, is actually a huge problem with social media. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. They are not wise. Comparing yourself against somebody else is not a wise move. But let me say this, this is rife. In our day, there have been a lot of studies that indicate that the more time people spend on social media, things like Facebook and so, the more discouraged and depressed they get. Not making that up, the more discouraged and depressed they get. And this is actually because of a tendency to compare yourself to others that you're, you know, if you're viewing their page and what other uh, and whatnot, and then you're feeling sad about yourself. Uh, this has led to an acronym. Maybe you've heard of it, FOMO. Some of you will know what this means. FOMO, fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. It's a fear that people experience when they're online looking at other people's experiences. I look online and there's a picture of a bunch of my friends and they're all at this great restaurant. They're having a great time. And I think, well, I'm not there. I'm not having a great time. What's the matter with me? And I begin to compare my real life with your Facebook life. And that's a problem. That is a problem because it turns out This is going to shock you. It turns out that people are actually quite selective about what they post online. (laughs) Imagine. We don't post dull stuff. We don't post bad stuff. We don't post the drudgery of everyday life. We only post the exciting stuff. It's a little bit like those old-fashioned family Christmas newsletters that nobody does anymore. Thank God. (laughs) But you remember those letters? You remember those? In those newsletters, everything is perfect. The kids are all neurosurgeons. Even the pets get into Harvard. I mean, it's ridiculous. People go on to social media and they look at other people's postings and it's like, wow, look who she's dating. My boyfriend is ugly compared to him. <laughs> or they go online and they look at it, wow, look at the vacation that their family took. Our vacations stink compared to that. Oh man, look at how their kids are doing. They're all doing so well and they're all so happy. My kids are struggling. And it all becomes a very, very large breeding ground for envy. And envy, you know, is one of the seven deadly sins. Do you know the seven deadly sins? It's pride and covetousness, lust, anger, gluttony, sloth, and envy. Seven deadly sins. Francis Bacon, an English philosopher and statesman and scientist and author, this guy was very, very bright. He pointed out in the 1600s that envy is the only one of the seven deadly sins that's never fun. It's never fun. Nobody nobody ever enjoys envy. Envy is always about comparing yourself to others. Interestingly, social media, to a large extent, has become just a greenhouse, a place for breeding envy. But now with social media, you see, I'm constantly reading about how well you're doing, and that really bothers me. I'm tempted always to compare myself to yourself, and and when I do, I become envious And so an important question for us, because we're all going to continue using social media, is how do I stop envying? Is there something that can help me with the problem of envy when I am always seeing how well you're doing compared to me? 
And the answer to that is in the next commandment, number three. Don't allow digital discontent to produce an ungrateful heart. This is important. In the kingdom of God with Jesus, the great antidote to envy or comparison is always gratitude. It's gratitude for a life that I am living with Jesus. So regardless what I'm going through, whatever the struggle, the challenge, whatever, I know that Jesus is with me. I know there's some purpose in this. I know my character is being formed. And I know that good will come of this somehow, some way. The apostle Paul wrote to Christians in Thessalonica and he said this. And if what I just said isn't true, then what Paul says here is stupid. Here's what he said. He said, be joyful always. Well, that's stupid, Paul. If God's not in control, if God can't make everything work together for good, uh, if God isn't even involved in the difficult, tough things in my life, then that's stupid. But Paul's not stupid. Turns out Paul's exactly right. Be joyful always. Pray continually, he says. Stay connected to God. Talk to God. Bring your stuff to God. And then he says, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you. In Christ Jesus. He also said when he wrote a letter to Timothy, a young man who he had discipled, he said, uh, he says this, he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment. So before I go online, that's, that's what I need to ask God to give me. I need to ask God for a grateful heart. I need to ask God for the gift of contentment, which comes from being very thankful for what I have. And so uh, this Tuesday, I got several text messages, some friends of mine who were gathering for lunch. And these are guys that I spent over a year with in a discipleship group. And uh, I wasn't able to meet with them because I had to work on this sermon. Yeah, you you can tell how devoted I was so far, right? But um, my schedule this week has just been, was incredibly full with appointments and so. And so I was feeling a little sorry for myself, you know, "Eh, I can't meet with these guys and I got their texts flying back and forth. They were all looking forward to meeting, and they were kind of teasing each other, as guys will do sometimes, you know. And uh, so I'm home working on this sermon, feeling a little envious. My life wasn't as good as their life. And then in the early afternoon, after gathering, their gathering was over, and they'd had their lunch, I started getting text messages from some of these guys. Uh, they were very uh, encouraging Things. They were telling me they missed me, they wish I'd been there, and so one appreciated this about me, one appreciated that about me, and appreciated how I had participated in the group, and so it was all very encouraging stuff. And the strangest thing happened is I would get one of these texts, frankly, after another, instead of envying them, I just started to be grateful for them, that I had people like that in my life would go out of their way. They didn't need to do any of this, but they went out of their way just to encourage me and to thank me, and that made me grateful and thankful, grateful for friendships, grateful for them taking the time, grateful for a little community of men where we had invested in each other for more than a year and prayed for each other for more than a year. And I got to tell you, in that context, all the envy went away. You see, gratitude dispels envy. It's the anecdote to envy. Uh, Even though nothing outside me had changed and all that had changed was my heart and my way of looking at my situation. And uh, and interestingly enough, all this happened because of technology. They could just text me. Very good thing. See, because of people texting me and just telling me that they loved me, they appreciated me, they missed me, etc. So here's the point. Cultivate a grateful heart around your experience of going online and the things that you do there. 
That will help you. That will give you an antidote. That will give you some inoculation to the problem, a huge growing problem of envying people who put just the best stuff, just the best stuff online, you see. Number four, fourth commandment, very simple. Post humbly. Post humbly. One of the primary themes in the Bible is expressed in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. It says, he, God, mocks or opposes proud mockers, but he gives grace to the humble. And it's quoted by James in the New Testament and by Peter in 1 Peter. Uh, they both change the uh, wording very slightly, uh, but God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's the exact same idea. Again, the human race has always wrestled with pride. That's not a new thing. But with social media, we're wrestling with pride in new ways. With social media, we do an awful lot of image management. We want to make ourselves look better than we really are. We post pictures of us that we think look good. We emphasize our successes and our victories and our fun that we're having. We don't mention our failures. Like when I mess up or I'm having a bad day, I don't want anybody to think I'm complaining. So I'll try to make my postings uh, even then look kind of good, like I'm, I'm in the fight, I'm fighting the good fight, I'm struggling well, look at me, and so on, you know? And when I'm having a great day, well, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, so I'll post in ways again that make me sound pretty humble. There's actually a new word for this. Have, have you heard of the, the, the term humble brag? That's what it's called, humble brag. I want to brag about myself, but I want to get credit for being humble. And so this is a certain approach that I can take on the internet. Humble brag. I won't tell you who tweeted this out. This is an actual tweet, right? An actual tweet. I'm just going to quote it. This is what they tweeted. I just did something very selfless. But more importantly, it was genuine. And I know it means a lot to the person in the long run. So worth it. Now, you know, if you just did something very selfless, isn't it kind of defeating the purpose to actually tweet, I just did something very selfless? I mean, come on. <laughs> it's humble brag. It's a tendency we all have. Uh, it's not just a problem out there. It's a problem right here. Yeah. But uh, it's just an attempt to want to make ourselves look better than we actually are. Online media offers endless opportunities to indulge in this kind of stuff. It's the flip side of why folks end up feeling depressed when they go on Facebook. Uh, depressed about how well you tweet or what post you just put on, the, on Facebook. Thank God that our God does not do this. Humble brag is not in God's dictionary. It's not in his character. If he did, can you imagine? Can you imagine if God had a Facebook page, what that page would look like? I'm not sure you'd ever want to go there. The deity, relationship status, Trinitarian, number of friends, God only knows, unfriended, <laughs> list currently blocked, photos, none available, see second commandment. What's on your mind? What isn't, you know? Uh, recent posts, I rule, yeah. I'm thinking about writing another book. My first one is still the all-time bestseller. Now I have one billion worshipers taking the day off. Thank me, it's Friday. Boom, you know. <laughs> Thank God, he says to us, seek my face. Not seek my Facebook page. Thank God. Thank God that when he came to earth, he did not come as a braggadocious king, but as a humble baby in a manger who made himself a servant of all. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And so as we go online, we need to imitate him. 
There's no other way, right way to be online than to be humble. Have a humble presence online. Number five, don't confuse online popularity with authentic community. And boy, do people get this confused. Proverbs 18, one who has unreliable friends or many companions, right, is another translation. One who has unreliable friends or many companions soon comes to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And again, when we go online, we can get confused about popularity versus community, right? It's not, a, it's not at all unusual for somebody to have hundreds, maybe even thousands of Facebook friends. But when you ask people, how many friends do you have that would be there for you in a crisis? How many friends do you have that know you like a brother, like a sister? You see, with these friends, you have no secrets. With these friends, you have transparent and uh, vulnerable relationships, probably not tons of them. You can't really have tons of these kinds of relationships, but hopefully you've got a few. And that's why in a world where online popularity is often confused with this thing of community, we need to have life group ministry. I'm serious. That's why we're investing more of our resources here at Deer Creek Church into making these life groups healthy and, and having uh, to be able to see them flourish, to see them thrive. Those of you who lead life groups, wow, amen, thank you, thank you, thank you. That is a noble, noble task. You help people have a chance to have an actual friend or friends with whom they do some life and study together and, and engage the world together. You, you help people connect and grow and serve. In contrast, online friends often turn out not to be very reliable. As the writer of Proverbs says, one who has unreliable friends or many companions soon comes to ruin. This is amazing to me. Again, not making this up. Burger King, this is over a year ago. Burger King had a promotion a few years ago. And you, you all know the Whopper, right? To start thinking about a Whopper later this afternoon. They, uh, they made an offer that if you would unfriend 10 of your friends on Facebook, uh, 10, uh, you could uh, have a free Whopper. <laughs> 10 days later, they had to shut the offer down because 233,000 people had unfriended 10 friends. And so right there, we discovered the worth of a Facebook friend. It's about 42 cents each. You know, do the math. That's the worth of a Facebook friend. Here's the thing. Part of why it becomes so addictive, this thing of getting friends or wanting likes and so, is that every time I get another follower, every time I get another like, there's a little surge of dopamine that goes into my brain. And that feels good to us. And I think, boy, I'm doing good. Somebody likes me. Somebody accepts me. Somebody's paying attention to me. And they're, they're my friend. Well, not Not really. Not really. Not most of the time. Now, this leads to the next commandment. Number six, spend more time face-to-face -face with people than on Facebook. Again, it's interesting to me. We live in a day where increasingly people are texting more than talking. Texting more than talking. We are preferring online conversation to face-to-face -face -face conversations. Um, and this has some pretty serious consequences. A study at the University of Michigan shows that college students who entered college after the year 2000 are showing a 40% drop, they said, in empathy from college students of earlier decades. They think it's because empathy is something you only learn face-to-face -face with people. 
It's, it's an acquired skill, a learned skill. And uh, the story of Joseph in the Bible has always been interesting to me. Uh, it's an amazing story of someone who learns empathy through suffering with other people. When Joseph was a young man, you remember his father made him the favorite son, coat of many colors. You've all seen the uh, musical. Uh, and his brothers were furious. They were devastated by this slight and, and this favoritism. And Joseph was clueless to the whole thing. Watch, read how he interacts with his brothers in, in the book of Genesis, chapter 40. And so uh, Joseph is just clueless. He couldn't read their faces. He had no empathy for what this might mean to his, to his siblings. And then he goes through this long journey. His siblings sell him into slavery. He's falsely accused. He winds up in prison. And after many years, I believe it's 11 years uh, of this process, he finds himself there with two of Pharaoh's officials. And this is what we read in Genesis 40, verse 7. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? This tells me Joseph has learned something in the intervening time, this period of suffering, this period of interacting with others who are suffering. Joseph had finally learned the art of reading faces. He was learning something about empathy. And we're in danger in our era of becoming more and more online digital people, texting versus talking, of losing this gift, this thing of empathy. One researcher said that she's increasingly told by folks who spend a lot of time online that they prefer texting to face-to-face -face conversations. And when she asked the question why, people responded, well, it's because when we're texting, we're in control. I control what I want to say to you, and so on. But when I'm talking to a real person, I'm not really in control. There may be long, awkward pauses, differences of opinion. It could become contentious. I can become embarrassed. And so, you see, the great thing about our devices is I'm in control. I don't have to look you in the face. I can block you if I want. I can keep you at a comfortable distance. You can't really do that in real friendships you got to process stuff in real friendships. Sherry Turkle, she's a researcher at MIT. She's a sociologist. She's a very bright woman. She does a lot of TED Talks. You can check out her TED Talks. They're phenomenal. Way better than this message. But we are drawn to technologies, she says, that provide the illusion of companionship without the demands of relationship. I think that is profoundly insightful. You see, it's just easier to text than it is to talk. I don't want to actually ask somebody out for a date. I could get rejected. Where was texting when I was in high school, you know? I have to look at your face. I could tell by just reading your face, oh, I shouldn't have asked that question. People are increasingly, we're told, breaking up by texting. There's even been a rise in people asking for a divorce via texting. We're in great danger of losing the gift of empathy that's only learned face to face. Spend more time dealing with people face to face than through a device. Number seven, don't write something online that you would not say to somebody face to face. Oh my goodness. If you don't pay any attention to any of these others, at least soak this one in. If you spend much time at all online, you know how often this one gets violated. Jesus had very, very clear instructions about communication in relationships where relationships get strained or messed up or broken. Jesus said in Matthew 18, if your brother or slash sister sins against you, 
Go and show them their fault. Just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother slash sister over. Friends, increasingly people are not doing this because we have other easier means now to communicate. They'll go to people, uh, other people and talk to other people about how angry they are at so-and-so because of what so-and-so did. Or they go online and they say cruel things they would never say in person, in, uh, in person or face-to-face. One guy was in a court of law and he was arguing that he does not have an anger management problem. I guess that was part of the issue in this case. And the other side produced his Facebook page where in the slot where it says, tell us something about yourself, he has down there, if you get crosswise with me, I will kick you into submission. This was on his Facebook page. That's easy to say on a Facebook page. I'm not sure he would ever say that face to face with somebody. So I would just say this, as people who want to follow Jesus, who don't get it right a lot of the time, we, we acknowledge, but can we agree? Cyberbullying is a huge problem. The level of cruelty online is a huge problem. Can we agree that that won't be the case here? In our community, that's, that's a no-no. No flaming emails no out-of-control texts, no online rants or posts on social media. If there's a sensitive conversation to be had with a brother or sister or another human being, let's go have it face-to-face. Let's go have it face-to-face. Okay? Number eight, behave on your little screen like your behavior is going to be seen on a big screen. One of the wonderful dynamics... Which is also terribly dangerous is the privacy that's involved in this technology. There's an interesting connection between technology and sexuality, human sexuality. You know, when Gutenberg invented the printing press, the most famous book ever created on the printing press was, of course, the Bible. That's right. And it's amazing how technology made the Bible more available to people. Actually, the printing press really made the Reformation possible because it meant you could get the Bible into the hands of more and more people. But the Bible was not the most profitable product that came out of the printing press. The most profitable books that came off the printing press were pornography back in the 1500s. Aren't you glad that didn't happen with the internet? You know, we're going to have a whole weekend devoted to the internet and its effects on human sexuality, which is a huge topic and a huge issue. Uh, We want to offer some hope and some encouragement around that to folks who wrestle with the internet and this thing of sexuality, and we're going to do that the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Uh, So I hope you can be here with us on that one. We'll dive uh, deeply, as deeply as we can, into that subject. Good time to invite your grandparents. Again, (laughs) I want to live my life in front of a little screen as though all my behavior would be shown on the big screen. And this is part of... uh, of where having another person in your life, a close friend with whom you can be accountable, is so incredibly important. The writer of Ecclesiastes underlines this. This is a familiar text to almost all of us, but two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. We all fall. We need someone to help us up to speak speak truth into our lives, as well as grace and mercy. 
Maybe you wrestle with the temptation of porn online, or maybe it's online shopping that's a problem for you, or maybe you're tempted to get into a relationship or a conversation with somebody online, and you've already crossed uh, boundaries or barriers you shouldn't have crossed. That's headed in an unhealthy direction. Or maybe you're tempted to gamble online. Again, this stuff is going on all over the place. Facebook, other places, you name it. Don't try to carry that burden yourself. You need a friend, a real friend. So important. You see, I'm going to stand before God one day, and I don't want to be carrying burdens around because of the little screen that I usually have in my pocket, you know. That's number eight. Number nine, honor the digital Sabbath and keep it holy. Talked about this two weeks ago. You can decide for yourself how to arrange this. It'll be different for everybody, given our schedules and commitments and so. But the point is this. Have regular times when you unplug. This is essential, friends. One of the questions that researchers have asked is, if often being online or in social media is kind of depressing for people, why do people do it? Well, there's a very important reason. It has to do with the human mind and how it's affected by sin. The premier researcher in human consciousness, the premier researcher on uh, the human mind and how it works is a guy named uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. I didn't make that up. And this is what he writes. He's, he's in, a, in a paragraph where he's summarizing some, of, summarizing some of his research. He says this, when left alone, the basic disorder of the mind tends to reveal itself. And he goes on to talk about what that basic disorder is. His research shows that the unoccupied mind or the unaided mind will always tend towards fear, anxiety, anger, and worry. That's what he means by disorder. So in other words, if you're not watching TV or a movie or texting or Facebooking or playing a video game or whatever, if your mind is not occupied, if your mind is not kept busy, your mind goes to dark places. It drifts to fear and anxiety and worry and anger. That's why we get so desperate for something to keep our minds occupied. That's why we, we always take the smartphone into the bathroom. That's why, you know, it's the last thing we look at at night and the first thing we look at in the morning. The basic tendency of the human mind is toward disorder. Research shows it. And as often is the case, Scripture has known this right from the beginning. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 writes this. This is verse 5 through 9. He says, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. Disorder, you see. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. That's, that's order. The mind of the sinful man is death. That's disorder. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Make that contrast in your mind. The sinful mind is hostile to, to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ, the mind left to itself, controlled by the sinful nature, will always turn to brokenness, to fear, to anxiety, to worry, and to anger. Not the things of God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
gentleness, and self-control. And you know, there are two practices that are really important that can help us here. More than ever before, I think now that we live, because we live in this digital age, if we're going to have minds that are governed by the spirit versus, you know, governed by the the sinful nature, if we're going to have minds life and peace, we've got to practice solitude. We've got to practice silence. We talked about this two weeks ago. We looked at Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. And I suggested a practice for you just to exercise that muscle of getting still and of listening to God and hearing from God. You see, if I'm never still, I can't know what's going on in my heart or in my mind. If I am never still, I can't know whether my mind is being governed by the flesh or or being governed by the spirit. If I don't self-assess, I'll never know. Wait, wait a minute. Why am I so anxious? Why am I so worried? Why am I so fearful? Why am I so angry? If I want my mind and my heart to be governed by the Spirit of God, I've, I've got to assess. There's got to be stillness. So times of solitude and silence are critical in order that my mind can be transformed. Paul writes this. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, how do I renew my mind? Well, when you have times to be alone, to be quiet, to be still, uh, you, you can pray. You can read scripture. You can think and listen silently for what God might be saying to you. You can memorize scripture, one of the greatest things that you can do. So my mind can be filled, you see, with wonderful thoughts. Again, it's hard for us to do this than ever before because we are not used to practicing a discipline that requires me to sit and think and focus and actually memorize something or read and concentrate on what it's saying. And so, you know, we'd rather just sit in the bathroom with the device. I do solitaire. What do you do? But you see, I don't have to think. It's a thoughtless activity. Yeah. Number 10. They've got two clocks now for me to look at. I mean, what is this? You're sending me a subliminal message. We have a clock back there and a clock up there. I get it. I get it. Number 10. Remember that who you are in God matters more than who you are online. See, who I am is not determined by how many Twitter followers I have, by how many likes I get, by how quickly my texts get answered or returned, or how full my email box is. You see, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I am who I am. I am worth what I'm worth, not because of anything online, but because Jesus died on a cross for my sins. That is my worth. (laughs) Do you think for one second it is a coincidence that 2,000 years ago, Jesus said they need something. They need a way to remember that I love them. They need a way to remember that I died for them. They need a way to get their hands on this, to ingest this truth over and over and over and over. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think... uh, I think Jesus gave us this meal, this sacrament of the Lord's Supper, um, because he knew how badly we needed it. (laughs) This is a reminder that we are face-to-face, so to speak, with Jesus. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples, he says, took the bread and 
He said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's kind of face to face if you think about it. And Jesus took the cup and in the upper room with the disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for many for the remission of sins. It's so tangible. We need tangible. We need something more than just a screen. And these tangible elements of the sacrament that we call the Lord's Supper, they're, they're here to remind us until he returns how much he loves us. Is that good or what? <laughs> I wanted to do the second part of my sermon. <laughs> so these are the 10 digital commandments. I'm asking everybody to make a commitment uh, to really grapple with this and say, yes, you know, these are helpful guidelines. These are biblically informed, and yes, that's the way I want to function on the Internet. Uh, anybody know who's in charge of the Internet? <laughs> Al Gore, close. Very, very close. We're in a church, people, for crying out loud. Who's in charge of the Internet? Jesus. There you go. The oldest confession of the church is Jesus is Lord. It's the oldest confession of the church. Lord of what? He's Lord of everything, isn't he? He's Lord of every nation, Lord of every corporation, Lord of every media outlet, every culture. He is the Lord of every civilization. Now, not everybody knows that yet, but they will. Not everybody is living under or in submission to his lordship, but someday everyone is going to know. But this is the confession of the church. Jesus is Lord. Why don't you say that with me? Jesus is Lord, even Lord of the internet. And that means the gospel, the good news that through Jesus, God is going to bring up there heaven down here to earth. That is why we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to be true. We want that to be true even for the internet where we actually do much of our lives. We want the internet to be under the lordship of Jesus. And my goodness, imagine if it was. Every post on the internet expressing the will of God, every text that God sent, every email that God emailed, every app that's ever been created, if everybody reading, watching, and experiencing the internet would be full of joy and beauty and life and peace in the kingdom of God, how good would that be? That would be really good. Jesus is Lord of the internet. But here's the deal. It's up to you and me to demonstrate that with grace and with truth. You see, let's let our digital lives be lived under the lordship of Jesus. Amen? Bow your heads with me. I invite you to just simply pray and surrender your online life to God. Keep in mind, your online life like mine is a significant part of what you do, most likely. There's a real good chance you might never have committed this part of your life in a conscious way to the Lord, but it's an important thing that we do this. Paul says that we're to offer our bodies a living sacrifice. Technology is an extension of our mind, our hearts, our body. And so, God, we give you our devices, our cell phones, our iPads, our laptops. You know where we, each of us, need help, God. Maybe it's in the words that we post. Maybe it's in the images that we view. 
We want you, God, to be the Lord over our online lives. Would you do that for us, Father? Would you do that with us and in us and through us? Make your kingdom come and your will be done on the internet as it is in heaven. For we ask this in Jesus' name.